going to turn to the book of Matthew chapter 5 and read only one verse of scripture tonight. Matthew chapter 5, reading just one verse of scripture that as far as I know, and um, next year, in fact just a few months from now, this is December, February of next year, two months from now. I'll celebrate 50 years that I've been preaching. That's a long time. That's a really long time. Half a century. That's a long time. Don't shake your head too big. You can agree, but you don't have to strongly agree. But in all of those 50 years, I don't know that I've ever used this verse as a text. I'm sure I've used it in messages. I'm sure I have made reference to it. But I don't think I've ever preached from this verse of Scripture. I'm going to endeavor to do that tonight. Teach. Really, probably more than preach. But I'm going to do some teaching tonight. I will warn you that if Sunday night's podcast bored you, you're probably going to get bored again tonight. But I really feel like there's something in this that the Lord wants me to convey. And my method of conveying it may be a little different than the popular style of the day. But I am going somewhere tonight. So, Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 18, Jesus is speaking. And he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. And so tonight, I'm going to talk to you about the justification of jots and tittles. Hallelujah. The justification of jots and tittles. And hopefully you'll understand it better by and by. Let's put our Bibles down. Let's ask the Lord to help us. And I do ask, would you please say a prayer for me? I really do need the help of God tonight. I need His strength tonight to do what He's called me to do and to express this burden that's been on my heart for several days now. 
and I've been anxious. In fact, I, I hinted at it in my in my M&M class the other night and told them that they'd better act like they've never heard this. So it's been working on me for several days. And I really feel this tonight, but I do need the help of God. So would you pray with me right now and pray for me, everybody? Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ, God, I come to you right now and I surrender myself. God, I submit myself to the will of the Spirit. I recognize, God, that I've got to have your help. I can't do this without you. I ask you tonight, God, to have mercy upon your servant. In Jesus' name, let's worship Him together one more time, everybody. Let's give God some praise before we're seated. Come on, let's give God some praise. Let's really give God some praise. Praise God. God bless you. You may be seated. I, I would dare say tonight that most, if not all of us, are at least familiar with these words, these particular words that the Lord used. You've probably heard them referenced in at least a message or two. And if you've read your Bible or just read your New Testament, you've obviously read these words. But I think that while we're familiar with the words themselves, it's very likely that most of us are unfamiliar with the exact meaning of the terminology Jesus used. Of course, we probably understand the basic meaning. We, we know basically what he's saying. That nothing in his word is going to fail. We get the general idea. But I want to take some time tonight and show you that it's more than just a generic idea but that Jesus was really being very specific in what he was saying. And when you understand the terms he used, the real message of this verse becomes a whole lot clearer and a whole lot more significant to us. All right? So let's start out. He said one jot. Let's start with that word jot. The Greek word that appears in the original 
is Iota. It is the eighth and smallest letter of the Greek alphabet. Now, it is the Greek word, and, and I've said this repeatedly, you know more Greek than you think you do. You really do, because a lot of Greek words have been brought into the English language. If you ever heard somebody say something about not one iota, that's the English pronunciation of the Greek name for this tiny letter, iota. Not Yoda. They're not doing Star Wars or whatever, wherever that comes from, I don't know, but Iota. I O T A. Iota. Now, the English word Iota means a very small quantity. So you get the idea when Jesus said not even one tiny letter, not even the smallest letter of my word. Not the smallest letter used to write my word is going to I said this is the English or, or the Greek because the earliest manuscripts we have of the book of Matthew are in Greek. There are some scholars who believe that perhaps Matthew actually wrote it in Hebrew because I would remind you that he was writing to a Jewish audience. Anybody remember however many years ago we studied the book of Matthew and I pointed out to you that Matthew was directed of the Holy Ghost to write to a mainly Jewish audience. And that's why throughout his gospel you read where he is quoting scripture over and over. And he's saying that this was done that it might be fulfilled which was written by the prophet. Or this was done to fulfill what the psalmist said or whatever. He, he's constantly making reference to the Old Testament scriptures because he's writing to a Jewish audience. And there are scholars who believe that Matthew probably wrote this originally in the Hebrew language. We don't know that. We can't prove it. But as I said, the, the oldest manuscripts we have come to us in Greek. And the Greek word that's used is the name for the Greek letter of that alphabet. However, because he's speaking to a Hebrew audience, we can understand that he is actually making representation to the Hebrew equivalent of this letter, which is the Hebrew letter Yad. Now, this may seem like it, what difference does it make? But it does make a difference. Yad is also the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. All right. 
And so Jesus is saying, not one iota, not even the smallest letter used to write down God's word is going to fail. You can trust in every, not just every word of the book, but every letter of the book. That the men who were inspired to write it down were given the grace that they didn't even, they didn't even put down one wrong letter. That's how true and how accurate the scripture is. And so he said, not one jot or one tittle. Now, this Greek word that is here translated tittle, it, it is actually a word that is a reference to the apex of the writing or the drawing of a Hebrew letter of the alphabet. Now, I, I came very close to getting a picture and putting it on the wall so you could understand what I'm talking about. But you, when you think of the Hebrew alphabet, you have to kind of think of letters that are generally, um, think more in terms of our small letter M or N. You know, it takes a little bit of space. It's not just like the letter L or I. They're, they're a little bit wider. They, they almost are pictures in some ways. In fact, in ancient Hebrew, very ancient Hebrew, the letters were pictures. We talked about this the other night with, with the, the letter um, that begins the word halal. And, and it's a picture of a man with his hands raised. That letter is a picture, you understand. And so ancient Hebrew, the letters were pictures. So it's more than just a little slash here or slash there. But when it comes to the tittle, this really is something that goes beyond what the jot, the yod, the iota is. Because the tittle is really referencing a very small dot that would be made over either the beginning or the end of the letter. Now again, think of the letter M, you've got two humps. So if the dot came above the first hump, that's one letter or one sound. But if the dot came over the second hump, it was a different sound altogether. All right? So what you end up with, for instance, the Hebrew letter shin. If the dot was at the right end of the letter, now Hebrews read from right to left, so that would be the beginning of the letter. If the dot was above the right end of that letter, then it was pronounced with an SH sound. If, however, that dot, that tittle, was put over the end of that letter, the left end, the latter part of that letter, then it was pronounced as an S sound rather than SH and was then called sin, not shin. 
And so it would actually be a different spelling of a word because the dot was placed somewhere different. Now, if you think this doesn't really make a difference, let me just, let me just give you an English example. Think of the difference between the word sour and the word shower. Changing the beginning sound from S to SH changes the whole meaning. And Jesus said, not only will not one jot pass away, but not even one little dot that appears over a letter. You can trust everything about the Word of God. There is nothing about this book that is untrustworthy. I wish I could say this the way I feel it tonight. But Jesus was not only saying the smallest letter won't fail, but He's saying even the smallest dot above a letter is not going to fail. I mean, he is trying to really drive home a point to the reader and to the hearer that you can trust the Word of God, even to the most minute details. Now, we've talked about, when we we were going through our study of Mark, we would point out that sometimes there are little differences in the way the stories are presented. Not a contradiction, but just a little difference in the way the story's told. And there really are very, very few scriptures that appear in more than one gospel with the exact same wording. Okay? But let me show you something. Matthew 24, verse 35. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Now Mark 13, 31. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Now Luke 21:33. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. I'm telling you, it is so unusual to find a verse of Scripture that is worded exactly the same in three out of four Gospels. You think the Lord wasn't trying to drive a point home? Heaven and earth will fail before His word's going to fail. The sun will fail to rise in the morning before we will reach a point that we can't trust what's written in this book. The earth will not turn on its axis before this book quits telling us the truth. The seasons are not going to change before this book changes. Praise God. We can trust the Word of God. Every jot and every tittle. Peter. Peter confirmed this in his epistle. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 23 through 25. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. By the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. By the Word of God, which does what? Liveth, it lives, and abideth, and it abides forever. Forever. Read on. For all the flesh is as grass, 
and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. Oh, I wish I could, I wish I could show you how I'm feeling tonight. I, I can't. I wish I had the strength to display physically for you what I'm feeling in my spirit tonight. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But, but the word of the, the Lord, word of the Lord endureth, endureth forever. forever. I'm telling you, we ought to be excited about what God's given us. I don't care what the world says about this book. I don't care what skeptics say about this book. I don't care what anybody else thinks about this book. We can depend on the Word of God. It's true from cover to cover. It's never going to fail. It's never going to lie. It's absolutely true. Matthew, Mark, Luke, they all, they all quoted this verbatim. There's no difference in their Gospels on this one statement. But what about the fourth Gospel? Well, let me tell you, John didn't include that statement. But he said something even stronger. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the the Word, word. and the Word was with God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was God. What else do we have to say about the Word? What else do we need to know? The only way the Word's going to fail is if God fails. The only way the Word's going to pass away is if God passes away. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 14 tells us, And the Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, and the glory of the the only begotten of the Father, Father, full of grace grace and and truth. truth. Oh, thank God for the Word. Thank God for the Word. Somebody ought to get excited about the Word of God. Somebody ought to get excited about the Scriptures. Listen, friends, this has got to be more than just a book that sits on your shelf that you pull out once a week to come to church. It's got to become more to us than that. This book is true. Every word of it's true. Every jot of it's true. Every tittle of it's true. Oh, I could preach on that a while, but if I do, I won't get to the rest of my notes. So I'm going to slow down a little bit now. This is where I don't want you to fall asleep. And they promised me they'd bring me some songbooks up here just in case people started falling asleep. My strength may not be too good, but my aim is still decent. Hallelujah. You know, we're coming to the close of another year, and I um, have an assignment for you, ASAP. Um, those new Bible reading charts, not, not while I'm preaching, but 
at some point. My, my earpiece is going out. The battery's good. No, the battery's good, but there's a short, and it's going out. And uh, I may just have to take it off and, and just struggle with it. It's a bad night to have to struggle with it. But anyhow, forget that. Coming to the close of a year, and, and uh, the, the new Bible reading chart is ready. It just hasn't been printed yet. We'll get those printed out so you can get started. Because as I've done every year, I'm going to again ask you to please read your Bible through in the coming year. And you know, many of you start out with really good intentions. You fully intend to read it through. But many of you are sitting here right now saying, <clears throat> I meant to, but I didn't. We end up falling behind somewhere along the way. Now, personally, I think the reason some people fall behind in their Bible reading is because, now hear me out, because there is so much detail that seems so uninteresting or insignificant that it's easy to start getting bogged down. My guess is that most people who drop out usually do so in one of two places. From the 1st of February through the middle of March, you are slugging your way through Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy with various laws, lists, instructions and if if you're a good soldier and you fight on through that somewhere around the end of April to the beginning of May you reach the Chronicles with its seemingly endless lists of genealogies so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and it's just hard to get through the begats. And with that being the case, it would cause one to ask why did God, in His great wisdom, put all of this insignificant stuff? Now, I'm not being blasphemous. I'm just being human. You've had those thoughts. Don't act so sanctimonious. You get to those points thinking... Oh, brother, will I get through this? And you wonder, why is it even there? 
What difference does it make? Well, tonight I've come to justify the jots and the tittles. The insignificant things. The things that don't seem to matter to us. But again, this great wise God that we serve chose to put it in His book. Why would He do that? What's the purpose? We'd be more faithful in reading if we didn't have a list of begats. Maybe. If we didn't have to read all the rules of the Levites. Let's get to some interesting stuff. You know, at least in Judges, we're reading about faddles. And, and if the ladies are not happy reading about battles, just hang on. You'll get to Ruth and get to read a good love story. And You know, I mean, there's a little bit of everything in there. Exciting stories, lots of things in the pages of God's Word, but then we get these things that seem to mean nothing, and God put them there. Do we really believe that every word of the Scripture is divinely inspired? Do we really believe that? Do we then believe that the begats are inspired, that the rules for the Levites are inspired? That the laws for the Jewish people are inspired? Do we really believe that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God? Well, why did God inspire this stuff? Well, we can't figure God out. But I do believe that these things are far from insignificant. And over the last few weeks, to me, it has been driven home that much more. Just how significant these little, if we could call them jots and tittles. I, you understand what I'm saying, making an analogy that just like the jot, the yod, just one little letter, or the tittle, one little dot, we look at these things and think, this chapter is full of nothing but jots and tittles. Why? Well, you know, I haven't figured it all out. But I do think I've got a fairly decent idea as to why God did it. Let me just share a few examples with you, all right? Now, Sunday night in the live podcast, I talked to you about the life of Jesus. And I, I pointed out to you that one little thing that Luke added to his story seems to be insignificant to most people. Does anybody remember me talking about Zacharias was serving under the course of Abiah? Were you still awake at that point? That's one of those things that you read, you read, you read, you read, and you think, so what? Right? But I showed or tried to show you Sunday night 
that really that little detail makes a lot of difference in helping us to determine a timeline. Let me just say this, and I was going to save this for when I get down to the conclusion, but I'm going to throw this in right now. Let me just tell you that it is these details that take the Word of God from being just a book of stories to an actual historical record. Because by the writers being inspired to give us these details, it forces them to be accurate. And when men are just writing myths, as so many people claim that the Bible is, they don't start telling you it happened during the 18th year of Tiberius. They just say it happened. But when you go to the length of stating exactly what year this took place, then it becomes a, a record that can be checked against history. So, so I kind of got ahead of myself in the example that I gave to you, but, but, but by using that course of Abaya, that little tidbit helps to pinpoint the exact dates of service in which Zacharias would have been in the temple and therefore helps us to identify when his wife would have become pregnant and therefore when she gave birth and therefore when Jesus was born. All of this because of one little detail that seems to be insignificant. And this is not the only point of reference that helps us to identify the Lord's birth. Now, I didn't bring this in on Sunday night, so just bear with me. That's why I said if you didn't enjoy the podcast, you're probably just going to check out on me before I'm done tonight. But I want you to hear me. I'm, I am here tonight in justification of jots and tittles. I want to show you there's a reason why God does what He does. God is smart enough to know we need these little details. We might just skip over them. We might just ignore them. But they're there for a reason. Hallelujah. Let me show you another little detail that a lot of folks overlook. Let's go to the book of Luke chapter 3 verses 1 through 3. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip being tetrarch of Iturea, and the region of Trachonitis. I warned Brother Goff, but I didn't warn him early enough. But he's got a lot of names to read tonight. I told him, don't worry about it. If you mispronounce them, nobody knows the right way to pronounce them either. So they're just going to think you're doing it right. So don't worry about it. Just read it. Amen. All right, where were we? Trachonitis. Yes, sir. And Lacian. Sounds like a disease. <laughs> That's what somebody gets from running too much. They get trachonitis. <laughs> Trying to make sure you stay awake tonight. All right. And Lacinius, the Tetrarch of Abilene, and Anus, and Caiaphas being the high priest, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the country about Jordan 
preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. All right, now look, again, you're reading, you're reading the book of Luke. I said a while ago the 18th year, I'm sorry. The 15th year. But I want you to notice this. Put verse 1 back up there if you don't mind. I want you to notice this. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, at a time when Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea, which was a short window of time. But not only was Caesar, Tiberius Caesar reigning and Pilate was governor, but Herod during this time was the tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eturia, and of the region of Trachonitis, and Licinius, the tetrarch of Abilene. And so, so he's, he's again identifying a very specific time period. Then he goes on to say in verse 2 that it was during this same time, during the window of time in which Annas and Caiaphas were serving as high priests. Now, again, he's bringing a lot of names that don't mean much of anything to us together. But I would remind you that Luke was a physician. Luke cared about minute details. And there's a reason why God inspired Luke to write a gospel. We needed these details. Because though these details don't mean much to us, they become very important when talking to skeptics. Because this nails down a very limited time frame. When we're in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, and during this 15th year, Pilate's the governor, Annas and Caiaphas are high priests, the three sons of Herod the Great that I talked about Sunday night, each of them now have their areas. Luke becomes very specific in nailing down a time period when John the Baptist received a word from the Lord and began baptizing. Very narrow window that this can fit into when you start looking at historical documents. I mentioned Sunday night the records of Flavius Josephus, who was a Jew who wrote uh, the history of the Jewish people for the Roman government. He's not the only historian we have. We have other records from Roman history. All right? But what we have now is a very limited time period. We know when we compare these facts that we're talking about the year A.D. 29. All right? The only time that will fit all of this chronology, it sticks us right at A.D. 29. Now, here's what's interesting about this. Same chapter. We're in Luke chapter 3, all right? This is Bible study time. I know none of you are, well, I see one or two Bibles open. Thank you. Um, but we're in Luke chapter 3 right now. And so we're continuing on this same story. We get down to verse 22 and 23. I could read more of the story, 
But I want to just skip down to verses 22 and 23, the same chapter. This is happening the same time frame, all right? Same window when all of these things come together. Now look at what he says in verses 22 and 23. The Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven, which said, Thou art my beloved Son, and thee I am well pleased. And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, which is one of the son of Heli. All right. So this is all significant. So did you notice in verse 22, the Holy Ghost descended in bodily shape like a dove, and a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved son. So what's going on here? I skipped over some verses, but what's going on? The baptism of Jesus, right? Now, he's baptized, verse 22, Verse 23 says, and Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age. Now when you study the language here, what this actually means is Jesus was about to turn 30. All right? He began to be about 30 years of age. And, and the actual language used means he was about to turn. It was getting close, in other words, to his 30th birthday. Okay? In the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, during the time when Annas and Caiaphas are high priests, in this little window of opportunity, Jesus was about to celebrate his 30th birthday when he was baptized. Now when you start tracking down this little window of time, historically, Josephus and the others, Here's what you find. Evidently, this baptism took place sometime in the month of November of A.D. 29. Now, isn't that interesting? And Jesus was getting ready before too long to celebrate his 30th birthday. Merry Christmas. I, I didn't include that Sunday night, but, but I'm just showing you again that even these jots and tittles help us so much. Things that we just look over, that we don't pay any attention to because we think they are insignificant. Even the jots and tittles are significant to us. They carry a meaning for us. Now, let me just tell you, there's a reason too why it mentions he's about to turn 30. Because you see, Jesus did not begin his earthly ministry until after he was baptized. In fact, it was after he was baptized, he was driven into the wilderness and was there for 40 days which is a little over 
a month. Meaning he didn't come out of that until sometime in December. Right? So he begins his ministry. Why is this significant to us? Well, let me just tell you, the Jews had a custom. They had a little bit of scripture for it, but, you know, this is the way that the Jews did things. They took a little bit of scripture and made a whole lot of rules out of it. Jesus didn't always abide by their rules. But there was some significance here. So let me just, let me just tell you that the Jewish custom in Jesus' day was that a man needed to be 30 years old before he would be allowed to teach in a public setting. So when did the word of the Lord appear to John? It was during this little window. And when did John start baptizing? Probably sometime around November of that year. John was six months older than Jesus. John was already 30. He had already turned 30 when he started his ministry. And Jesus was about to turn 30. And he's going to start his ministry. Now, again, there was a little bit of scripture to back this up. And uh, I don't think I put this down, so we're not going to take the time to read it. But, um, but you can actually go and see that when, when the Lord spoke to Moses and told him to number the priests, he said, I want you to number them between the age of 30 and 50. And so it became the Jewish tradition and rule that the priests would only serve between the ages of 30 and 50. Now, that's not something God commanded. This was a rule they put on him. But I'm going to tell you, Jesus did come to try to reach these Jews. And if they wouldn't listen to a man who wasn't 30, then Jesus was not just going to throw that out the window because he wanted to at least give them the opportunity. Does that make sense? So there's a reason why we really don't read anything of his life from the time he's 12 until the time he's about to turn 30. Because the Jewish people to whom he first came would not have listened to him until he reached that age. Now, there's, there's other significance. Because when you think of a couple of very important Old Testament figures in the minds of the Jews, who were to the Jews a symbol of the Messiah, I have to explain that to you. One was the man Joseph. How was he a symbol of Messiah to them? I'll tell you how. Because he became the Savior of the world. Right? The whole world is experiencing a famine. And who is it that's got the wisdom to provide food for the world? Joseph became a savior. Do you know when Joseph started serving under Pharaoh? According to Genesis 41:46, he was 30 years old. 
The next figure that was important to the Jews that they saw as, as kind of a foreshadowing of the Messiah to come was their first real king, David. David was the giant killer. David was the one who expanded Israel. The largest the nation of Israel has ever been was under the reign of David and his son Solomon. They conquered more territory under David. This was the golden age for the Israelites. And so David held a special place in their hearts. Do you know by any chance how old David was when he started reigning? 2 Samuel 5 and 4 says David was 30 years old. So the Lord knew what he was doing and not only did he know what he's doing in putting off his ministry until age 30, but he knew what he was doing in the spirit when he moved upon Luke to give us a few little details that we just read over and think, ah, so what? Well, this ought to let us know, so what? There's important facts hidden away in the jots and the tittles of Scripture. I'm here to tell you, my friend, that there is a reason for these insignificant details. When you start reading the Word of God, I want you to know there's a reason for these chronologies. My time's almost up. I'm not going to get to it. We're going to make this a two-part series, unfortunately, for those who are not enjoying this tonight. We're going to make this a two-part series. I guess the fortunate part is you don't have to listen to me keep going through the rest of it tonight. But I'm telling you that when you pick up your Bible in the coming year and you start hitting those rough spots, I want you to just remember everything in this book, God's got a purpose for it. We may not see it and we may not know it, but somebody out there is challenging the facts of this book. And God was smart enough that he put the details in there to prove the truth of the scripture. Let me just say this tonight. I am going to close. Musicians come. I'm going to just close at this point because I'm getting ready to go into the second example. And it really gets into some detail. But let me just tell you, I've been sharing this with, with some of our M&M class. Uh, let me just tell you, one of the reasons I'm so excited, those of you that have heard that I'm going on this archaeological dig in the coming year, one of the reasons I'm so excited about this is because archaeology over and over and over is proving the truth of God's Word. The Bible doesn't need it. We just need to believe the Bible regardless if they never find evidence. In fact, one man wisely said one time, the lack of evidence does not prove, uh, or the absence, he said it this way, the absence of evidence does not prove the evidence of absence. Does that make sense? 
Just because we don't have some proof that it happened doesn't mean it didn't happen. But as they continue to dig, they're finding more and more. Uh, I, I, was, I was sharing with some folks, there are actually skeptics out there who for years claimed that during the life of Jesus, there was no evidence that leprosy even existed in Israel during that time. And therefore, the stories of Jesus healing lepers was nothing but a myth. Until one day, an archaeologist is digging in a tomb, and he finds something totally out of the ordinary. It was not like the Jews to seal off. They had these little niches in the tomb. And, and they would put these little bone boxes called ossuaries. They, it was, it's, it's a complicated thing. I don't want to bore you with all this. But, but the Jewish custom was that they would take the body. When, when the person died, they would take them into the, into the cave that was their burial grounds. And there would be one place carved out of this cave that would be big enough for them to lay the body there. And they would wrap the body. And then they would leave it for one year. I don't think they understood the chemistry of it. But the fact was the limestone of Israel, which was what they were burying in this limestone. There was something about the chemistry of the limestone when it mixed with the oxygen that it would disintegrate all the flesh, it would disintegrate everything, and when they would open those wrappings at the end of the year, there's nothing there but bones. Everything else is gone. Everything else had deteriorated. Everything else completely disappeared except the bones. And so they would have these little stone boxes called ossuaries, and they would gather up the bones. They're very small, not the size of a casket. You didn't need the size of it. They weren't laying it out as a skeleton. You understand? They're just collecting the bones. And they put them in these little bone boxes, and then they'd have these little niches, and they could put bone boxes. And sometimes they put two, three, four bone boxes in one niche. So they wouldn't seal those niches. And even the tombs themselves, they, they might put a, a seal of a kind over the front of the tomb, but it wasn't a permanent seal. Because they're going to put other family members in the same tomb. Everybody with me? But this archaeologist is, is, is digging in this family tomb. And he finds the niches and he finds the ossuaries. But he sees this one niche that is completely sealed. I mean, airtight. And he thinks, now this is strange. This is not normal. They never did this. And it became obvious from, from the way it's done and from the test that he could run that this thing had not been disturbed for 2,000 years. 2,000 years it has been sealed airtight. Airtight. So when he starts opening this niche, rather than there being an ossuary with a few bones, there's a skeleton laid out still wrapped. And there's still some skin and hair attached after 2,000 years because the oxygen wasn't present in enough of a level for the decomposition to take place. The interesting thing, they thought, well, we finally got somebody from 2,000 years ago. We can run the scientific test. We can find out what they died of. Guess what he died of? Leprosy. 
which is why they didn't come back and get the bones, which is why they sealed it off and never put anybody else there. But by doing that, they proved the skeptics wrong again. Here was somebody from the time of Jesus that died with leprosy. Time and time and time again, they've done it. There were skeptics who said there was no crucifixion, no evidence of crucifixions taking place during the life of Jesus until an archaeologist found a heel bone that for some reason the family couldn't get the nail out of that heel bone and it became very obvious because of where this person was buried and everything else about it that this individual had been nailed to a cross. And the proof was there. I'm just telling you, church, what you've got to understand is as you read the Bible, you need to think of yourself as a scriptural archaeologist. What you're doing, God has laid little clues all along the way. And even these facts, you're reading genealogies and think, what is this important for? I'm going to show you next week, Lord willing, why the genealogies are important. I'm going to show you why that even matters. And these long lists that we think, so what? What difference does it make? It makes a huge difference. To the skeptic who doesn't believe the word. And all of a sudden you start pulling these things out. And you find out the 15th year of Tiberius. And Pontius Pilate was governor. And so on. And, and, and you see all these details. And that just nails everything down. And you realize this is not a book of myths. But this was the divinely inspired word of truth. Oh, thank God for the Bible. Thank God for the Bible. Thank God we can trust this book. Thank God we can put our confidence in the Word of God.